You are listening to Climate Now. I'm James Lawler. And I'm Catherine Gorman. Today, we're going to talk about water, a key ingredient for life on Earth. How is climate impacting water availability? What can governments do about it? And how can companies protect against water risk? On the episode today, we will be speaking with Will Sarney. Will is an international expert on water strategy and innovation, and he is the founder and CEO of Water Foundry, a consulting firm that advises businesses and governments on water strategy, technology, and investment. He is also the founder of the Colorado River Basin Fund, which is a private equity investing firm focused on innovative technologies to address water quality and scarcity in the Colorado River Basin. Will, thank you very much for joining us today on Climate Now. James, my pleasure. So we'd like to start with the same question that we typically start with, which is, how did you get to where you are today in your career? How did you wind up doing all those things that I just mentioned? You know, I started my career as a hydrogeologist, so water supply projects, Superfund programs, litigation. I found out about sustainability, and that was pretty much it. It changed me forever. And how did you get involved in the business side of things? I had a firm by the name of Damani, and we built the firm into one of those very early leading sustainability strategy shops working for U.S. and multinationals primarily. That was roughly about 20 years ago. Okay. So way back at the dawn of time. The dawn of time. Well, the dawn of time. Before the use of fossil fuels. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, James, it was quite the day. You know, it was really before people sort of viewed sustainability as mainstream. And if you said you were a sustainability strategy consultant 20 years ago, people would say, you get paid for that. So we had the firm for 11 years. The firm was sold to Deloitte Consulting, the U.S. firm, and I built their corporate water strategy practice. For the uninitiated, what is a corporate water strategy? And what, what does that even mean? So imagine if you make semiconductor chips, you make beer you make automobiles, you need water to really make anything. If you don't have a gallon of water or a liter of water, you can't make a car or you can't make a semiconductor chip or a liter of beer or whatever. So quantifying the value of water to business, ensuring that they understand the importance of water to business continuity and business growth, and then developing a strategy to mitigate the risk from not enough water to poor water quality, whatever it may be. And then the strategy looks at, well, this is how I can be more efficient. This is how I could reuse more water. These are the partnerships I need to be involved with. This is how I need to talk about what we're doing. Left Deloitte roughly about five years ago to start Water Foundry. And Water Foundry is your consulting firm. And then what made you decide to co-found the Colorado River Basin Fund? Well, it was in many ways, a logical extension of starting to work with entrepreneurs, uh, startups with some really interesting ideas and businesses to address water-related issues and raise money and, and make investments in those companies and work with them to help them grow. Before we talk more about your work, I think it's important to give our listeners some background here on why the Colorado River Basin is so important. I mean, you have to understand how massive it is. The river flows from Colorado through Utah, Arizona, and along the borders of Nevada and California, and then finally out along the border of the Mexican states of Baja, California, and Sonora, and into the Gulf of California. 
That's huge. The Colorado River is significant. You look at the you know GDP for the U.S. That watershed generates twelve percent of the national GDP in economic value. Wow! Through agriculture, manufacturing, and and other related industries. In August of 2021, ProPublica and the New York Times co-published a piece which is entitled "40 Million People Rely on the Colorado River." It's drying up fast. I wonder, Will, if you could give us a sense of the role climate is playing now and may play in the future for this river and the people and the, the, the businesses that rely on it. What's, act, what's happening and how dire is it? What we've seen is that the impacts of climate change have finally showed up in a big way. It's still referred to as the drought which is unfortunate because if you call it a drought long enough, people will think that good rain will take care of it. But it's, it's really a, a very persistent impact on the availability of snowpack and rain within the watershed. And you're seeing water levels at Lake Powell, Lake Mead drop to the lowest levels ever recorded. And that's having a toll on the availability of water for agriculture, for cities, also hydropower production. So you've seen this cascading effect on various industry sectors and communities. I mean, there's some pretty significant cities within the Colorado, Phoenix, Las Vegas, Tucson. So we looked at it and we created the uh, first place-based water technology investment fund. So we're not buying or selling water. We're identifying technology companies and entrepreneurs that we want to invest in and help them scale their business. What does this dynamic look like today? What are some of the behaviors that you see now in the Colorado River Basin related to water? One of the things you're seeing is an increase in pumping groundwater. So if you have less surface water, you're going to go to groundwater. And if you go to groundwater, you know, you're essentially mining groundwater and that you're extracting it faster than it can recharge. So that's not sustainable, but it will get you through in a pinch and we're in a pinch. On the public policy side, utilities are adjusting as fast as they can, depending on their resources and capital. And you're also seeing what we started, which is greater focus on mobilizing the investor community with entrepreneurs and helping them scale their businesses. And are you seeing people buying up water rights? Yeah, I mean, there certainly is that going on, buying the land, buying the water rights, and using the water for other purposes or investing in the agricultural productions. Yeah, so that's certainly part of the mix, not just in the American West and in the Colorado in particular, but other parts of the world. What are some of the challenges here? Are the problems in the Colorado River Basin due to climate change or are there other contributing factors? The basin has been over allocated almost since the beginning in terms of when the allocations were established. It was a wet year, wet years. You don't want to start carving up the pie when it's abnormally wet. When are we talking? Uh, I believe 1922. Okay. So what has happened within the Colorado? It, it's become urbanized. It's become developed. There's a lot more people here uh, than there used to be. So there's fundamental strain on available 
water within the watershed and you're starting to see changes in the climate which in part is less snowpack less precipitation and consequently less surface water over extraction of groundwater agriculture in the desert and not just agriculture in the desert because you can grow crops in the desert you just can't do it the way we do it which is flood irrigation and using water in ways that are not really very efficient mm -hmm. reality colliding with the status quo you've thought a lot about these two trends that you just mentioned this increased development obviously the huge reliance on the, the water resources and then on the other hand the dwindling of these resources and i'm wondering is it a problem that is fixable in your view by the levers that you've mentioned? Can we get to a sustainable place or are we screwed? <laughs> like, and, and that's a technical term, right? That's, that's, that's a scientific term. You can look it up. <laughs> well, um, before I answer, be forewarned, I am an optimist. I do believe we can get it right, but we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to acknowledge what needs a change and in many ways everything needs to change all the way from public policy to infrastructure to education and awareness we need to change hearts and minds you know all those things and that's a lot of hard work before we had any notion of climate change in many ways water was broken it was over allocated it's not valued most people don't know how much they pay for water mm -hmm. If you don't know what to pay for it, you tend to waste it. Issues of equity, you know, in terms of who has access to safe drinking water, who doesn't, who overpays for water. The poor typically pay more for water than those that are more fortunate economically. So all of these things, not uniformly, were in dire need of repair and addressing. Now you take climate change and layer that on top of it. It's a threat multiplier based here in Denver. And what we're seeing is essentially the aridification of the American West. And that means that there is less snowpack, less surface water. Well, what does that mean with respect to regulatory allocations of water? What does that mean from uh, a technology perspective, infrastructure perspective? Now it's far more complicated. And we need to really bake climate scenarios and climate thinking into how we solve public policy, technology, innovation, corporate initiatives, what NGOs are doing and so on. For the Colorado River Basin region, what do you think are the most powerful policy steps that can be taken? At the utility scale, change the price of water. It should be more expensive. Now, that doesn't mean that it gets so expensive that people can't afford it. Mm -hmm. But you have to send a signal that, yes, you need to use less. And yes, you can use less because now it's scarce and therefore more expensive. Instead of asking people to conserve water, make it mandatory. I'm always amazed by asking people to use less water. And then you see that water conservation only dropped under 2% in certain parts of the American West. Sometimes asking doesn't work. We need to rethink agriculture 
in terms of what makes sense. Agriculture seems to be one you know, place where there's probably a lot of opportunity. Can you describe how farming works in most places now in terms of water use and some of the technologies that you're aware of that could improve that picture from a water usage? Yeah, so uh, real-time data, giving the agricultural community data on a real-time basis so they know climate, weather, how much water they should use, how much water they are using, how that impacts crop productivity, giving the ag sector the tools they need to really do more with less. I mean, that's really what we're facing. And and it's not just the ag sector, but it's the private sector that uses the ag sector. And if you're making food and beverage products, you have an ag supply chain. How does the food and beverage sector work with their ag supply chain in watersheds that are challenged. Can you give us a sense of the companies that you're speaking with in your work at Water Foundry and the Colorado River Basin Fund? I mean, how big are these companies and and how are they talking about these issues? The companies that I work with are U.S. and non-U.S. multinationals. They have a strategic view of water as a risk. They understand water is important for their business in a number of different ways and are starting to quantify risk and understand how to make investments to manage the risks, which, you know, includes things like I will use less water. I will reuse water as much as I can. I will invest in partnerships to ensure access to safe drinking water, sanitation and hygiene. I will invest in my supply chain. I will invest in communicating to customers. Are there any examples of organizations, companies that you could describe that you think represent the the pinnacle of thoughtful and responsible water strategy? And what does that look like? There are a number of sectors that are really very active and and doing quite a bit. And they're iconic brands. So none of them would surprise you, even though I can't say who they are. I will say that you see the food and beverage sector, consumer packaged goods sector, historically doing a lot around water because they were early adopters. You also see automotive companies, food companies doing a lot because of, you know, concern about their supply chain, but also engaging with communities. One program that I'll mention is the 100 plus accelerator program that was started by ABNBEV. ABNBEV identified very promising startups that were addressing sustainability issues. So climate change, agriculture, water, packaging, issues like that. And this year they brought on board the Coca-Cola company, Unilever and Colgate-Palmolive. So as you think about the role of the private sector and how they can be part of the solution, it's that's a great example. I'm wondering, when you're looking at companies that are doing innovative things around water technology, like how innovative are we talking? You bring up a really important point. It's what is interesting innovation, sort of logical progression versus really disruptive and and game-changing. Pick a food and beverage company. You know, they're looking at improving how efficient they are in using their water in their manufacturing operations. You know, there's a technology clean in place where you now can clean bottles 
without using water and rinsing them. Well, that, that saves a lot of water. Are there opportunities to reuse water? There are artificial intelligence applications that can take data on how much water is being used and predict when you're starting to see more water being used, either because of leaks right. or you're getting failure in treatment membranes or whatever it may be. And the intersection with climate is that, you know, if you're using more water, you're using more energy, and in turn, there are more carbon emissions. Right. So if you reduce water use, you check the other two boxes also. Great. And what do you feel are the upcoming or existing technologies, your last point, that will best help to mitigate the water scarcity crisis? What are the big ones? Great question. Think about how digital technologies have changed all of our lives, every other aspect of it, from entertainment, transportation, healthcare, you name it. Everything is digital. We don't live in an analog world for the most part. Well, the digital transformation has been slow in the water sector, but that's changed and it's changed rather rapidly during the pandemic. So what does that mean? That means uh, a smart water home, the ability for you to know how much water you're using. It's the ability to monitor water quality on a real-time basis in your home. It's the ability to detect leaks before they're catastrophic. That's really transformative in a lot of ways. You know, so the digital technologies are significant, but also air moisture capture technology. So the ability to collect air moisture and store it in a tank and deliver safe drinking water to you off-grid on grid where you would just plug it in and it would be like an air conditioner. You know, those are the technologies I find interesting and also localized treatment systems. You know, right now we have centralized infrastructure, it's aging, it's underfunded, it's not always resilient to the impacts of extreme weather events. So just like what's happened in the energy sector, it's off grid, small scale, neighborhood scale. What about individual homes? I mean, for homeowners, are there any financial incentives to build smart water homes or to retrofit them to use less water, aside from maybe spending less? I, I would take a look at whether there are opportunities for lower insurance rates because you have leak detection equipment in your home that'll cut off the water and, and all that. Insurance companies pay more attention to those uh, technologies and, and solutions for obvious reasons. Well, is there anything we haven't covered today that we should have? The technology is really there, even if we stopped innovating and just deployed what we had. We'd be in a happier place. So how do we better communicate what are the issues and frame it not just as one more crisis, because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty crises out at yes. this point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to know... Okay. No, not, not enough. Not enough, Christ. Not, not another. I just can't handle it. But it's okay. Yeah. So this is what's going on. And these are the solutions. And this is how I can participate mm -hmm. in ensuring that those solutions are uh, deployed in a significant way. So the, the human side of the equation here is the most challenging. And education, awareness, and action is probably the most important lever you can pull. What are some of the resources that you could recommend to people? How can they learn more or get involved on a personal level? I would look at what Ceres is, is doing in terms of their corporate outreach. 
I'd look at the CEO water mandate run by the Pacific Institute. I'd look at the uh, CDP, formerly known as Carbon Disclosure Project, but they've rebranded to CDP. So they have CDP water, CDP climate. I would start there because that'll give you a good way of the land by industry sector and then dig in their websites and see what they're doing. The consumer is really pretty powerful. So if you like the way a beer company is managing water and compare that to another beer company that's not managing water so well, then, you know, buy from the company you value. I want to thank you so much, Will, for joining us today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, and I hope it was helpful. That is it for this episode of the podcast. You can check out other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter at climatenow.com. And if you want to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow or tweet at us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.